0: Okay, well... Hey, it's Kaylee. Welcome back to Nice Jeans. But first, that's producer Phoebe Melvin. G'day, everyone. And she's in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, so here I am at the University of Melbourne, and I am going to meet up with Dr. Axel Newton. I mean, she is Australian. And, uh, she's meeting up with her mate. Oh, hey! Hey, Axel! Hey. how's it going? Thanks for having us today. Should we, uh... Get started in the lab?
1: No worries, welcome to the Department of Zoology. This way.
0: Okay. She's descending into the belly of Dr. Newton's laboratory. All right, let's uh,
1: head up. All right, we're off to level one.
0: Where some pretty wild science is happening. Down
1: here on the end, we've got our Teague's museum. Oh,
0: fantastic.
1: All right, here we are.
0: Perfect, all right.
1: Yeah, what? Whoa, what is that? That's a moa. That's a, that's a genuine um, extinct moa.
0: That is a big bird.
1: Big bird. We've also and Dr moa,
0: Newton's we've experiment sets his sights on the animals and extinct species around him.
1: So I think that we have an obligation or a, a sort of a moral um, responsibility to, if we can possibly bring back this species, I think we owe it to the species to try and do so.
0: You heard that right. You're listening to Nice Genes, where we peek into the world of genomics, sponsored by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, your pocket detective into the science-verse. first. right. So, show us what you've got. Back to the lab.
1: Ah. There we go. So, this rarely sees the actual light of day, but we have... A collection of three skulls here at the museum.
0: Okay. They're looking at the preserved remains of a thylacine, or better known as...
1: It's called the Tasmanian tiger, but they're also known as the Tasmanian wolf, and it's sort of evolved this, you know, dog or wolf-like...
0: And are these um, the skulls that you'll be using to get the genetic information for your
1: project? Um, no, so unfortunately, these ones, the DNA would be quite degraded. Um, so we use a preserved pouch young specimen in ethanol that's housed over at the Melbourne Museum. And we get some really good quality DNA from that. because we. Actually- in this
0: episode, we're looking at a couple of big questions. Our planet is facing a significant threat due to climate change. It's getting hotter and harder for life on the planet to survive. But with sciency tools like genomics... We're better positioned than ever before to save the critters on this planet. And maybe even bring a few back. So what line should or shouldn't we cross when it comes to protecting our fellow species? If we graduate from being passive observers of the natural environment to becoming active interventionists, are we going too far? To begin unraveling these existential questions...
1: Test, test. Can you hear me all right? That's
0: great. I spoke with the enthusiastic scientist himself, Dr. Axel Newton. (laughs) Recently, there's been some big news that's come out from the work you're doing. So you and the rest of the Andrew Pask Lab had a huge announcement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this year's just been a a whirlwind year. Um, So very recently now, we've just gone into a, a partnership with a company called Colossal Biosciences, who've provided a very, very substantial donation um, to really look at de-extincting the thylacine as uh, something that we can really visibly do.
0: Can you tell us how you ended up here? How did you become a scientist inspired to resurrect long-gone animals?
1: Right. So it's actually super cliche, but I mean, one of my biggest inspirations or sort of dreams as a child was, um, you know, seeing Jurassic Park and seeing them bringing back dinosaurs and and also movies like Gattaca, just this prospect of genetic engineering, something that's always been very interesting to me. Long story short, I was very fortunate enough to meet my current um, boss, Andrew Pask at the University of Melbourne, who I heard was doing some work on um, thylacine genetics and uh, being an extinct animal, this immediately resonated with me and was something that I really wanted to do. So I uh, knocked on Andrew's door, and the rest was history.
0: That's very cool. And does it look anything like uh, the Jurassic Park? future that you envision?
1: No, not quite. It's it's funny, you know, it's like as you sort of learn more, you realize how um, unfeasible Jurassic Park is as a, as a concept, you know, which is a bit of a bummer. But you learn some really exciting things along the way.
0: Plus, we all get to just enjoy Sam Neill, so it's fine.
1: Frog DNA to fill in the gene sequence,
0: gap. Sam Neill's the love of my life, so. <laughs> and you know, and I'll Jeff Goblin, <laughs> of course. Just
2: leave it there. <laughs> Fairly alarmed here.
0: And from those humble Jurassic Park-inspired roots... Dr. Newton is now one of the researchers tasked with bringing back the Tasmanian tiger, a species that hasn't walked the earth or done much of anything, really, since 1936. What does a Tasmanian tiger look like?
1: So the Tasmanian tiger is a marsupial. It has a pouch. It's very closely related to Tasmanian devils. But it evolved um, to look like a, a large dog. And this is a really interesting phenomenon known as convergent evolution. Convergent evolution could be something like the evolution of flight, so between birds and bats. could also be the evolution to an aquatic environment, like sharks and dolphins, which have a very similar body plan. So the thylacine and dogs and wolves last shared a common ancestor um, about 160 million years ago. Yet despite that, they've independently evolved these very similar characteristics. So it's a very remarkable animal and really um, unique in that sense.
0: So we've got this dog-like Tasmanian tiger. What's the tiger for? Do they have stripes?
1: They do have stripes, yeah. So that was one of the most distinguishing um, and interesting features about them is they had these very distinct brown stripes down their hindquarters. And that's what actually gave them the tiger label, even though, again, they um, look nothing like a tiger other than the superficial stripes, and they certainly aren't related to one. Mm. So they are also known as Tasmanian wolves.
0: Can you give us a bit of a history lesson for how the tiger got extinct?
1: Sure. Sure. So, once upon a time, um, not only was there the Thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, but there was a bunch of other species within the same family. And um, once their original sort of historic range was all throughout Papua New Guinea and mainland Australia, and then sort of throughout time and through a few different um, processes, they think that the arrival of um, indigenous Australians. Uh, changes in climate, a bunch of other factors they think really started to push them down further, further south. So they were um, forced to cross down into Tasmania through a land bridge that once existed, and that's where they became isolated within Tasmania itself. Then from there, um, there was a really unfortunate event and one of sort of the darkest moments in human history, I believe, is that's when the European settlers came and started to colonise Tasmania. And then during this process, um, the Tasmanian tiger was actually labelled by these settlers as a sheep killer and through such a government-enforced bounty was placed on these animals offering I think it was one pound at the time per animal.
0: Okay so what do we have here?
1: So here I'm actually holding one of our larger um, specimens we sort of call this one Rex but this is a skull of uh, an adult um, quite a large adult pylacine. Uh, probably about 100 or so years old. And through that government-imposed bounty scheme, the thylacine was unfortunately eradicated and completely hunted to extinction. Um, And you can actually see one of the interesting features about this skull is that it has a bullet hole through the nose, which really sort of demonstrates the fact that these guys were hunted um, through the government-imposed bounty scheme. There was a small population of them that were kept within the zoos, but they died out quite quickly, unfortunately. And then the last individual, who was known as Benjamin, died in uh, in one of the zoos in 1936, and that was the sort of official uh, end of the species. It's a really, really unfortunate story.
0: And is there any reason in particular that you think we should bring them back?
1: I think that we have a moral obligation to do so. I mean, you know, we're not talking about an animal here that just went extinct because of natural processes. You know, this wasn't the dinosaurs being wiped out. This wasn't the mammoth, um, you know, progressively being wiped out either. This was an animal that existed within... There are people on this planet right now that are still alive that saw these animals in real life.
0: I spoke to my grandma yesterday. She remembers seeing one at the zoo in Adelaide when she was a little girl. There so you there go. are still people alive who remember seeing phylacines.
1: This was an animal that was here not very long ago and was hunted to extinction. They were eradicated by human intervention.
0: I think that's great. And I want you to know that I saw the parallel Jurassic Park there and Jeff Goldblum's speech around dinosaurs had
1: their shot. Had their shot and nature selected them for extinction.
0: And this is not the same thing. No, so it is. I want you to know that I saw you and I loved it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah they totally had their shot. Um, this was an animal that never really got to have its shot.
0: We're going to get into the nitty gritty of exactly how scientists are using genomics and DNA to bring extinct species back like the Tasmanian tiger. But there's one important step we need to touch on first. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you. you? I'm excited to meet you. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. So I reached out to another Aussie guide to chat about bringing species back from the brink.
2: Yeah, (laughs) let me know when you want to go. Can you introduce yourself to us? (laughs) Yes. I'm Dr. Carolyn Hogg, and uh, I guess if I had to describe myself, I would describe myself as a conservation biologist who uses uh, the latest genome technologies and artificial intelligence to try and figure out better ways to inform management decisions around conservation translocations and captive breeding.
0: Our big question in this episode is about that line that exists between observing the natural world around us and then actually intervening in it. And so where do you think we should sit there?
2: Well, I I think, unfortunately, in today's world, uh, the natural world is not the natural world of 100 years ago. Um, We've fragmented the landscape severely. We've impacted it with agriculture. Climate change is causing massive effects with forest fires, like megafires all over the world. There's drought, there's floods. And so really there is no longer kind of the natural world that we can leave to fend for itself because we've, we've separated the landscape too much. And so now is the time to, to start being a bit smarter about how we, we make decisions and how we, we manage that landscape moving forward.
0: And actually, you were talking a little bit about forest fires as just one example. So can you tell us a little bit about what Australia has faced in terms of forest fires?
2: Yeah, so um, Australia is a land of extremes it's a land of fire and flood and and drought. So we go through these massive cycles of drought and then we have these massive cycles of floods. And unfortunately, it's getting worse uh, in more recent years. Like The Australian bush is designed to burn. So a lot of uh, our Trees and our plants won't actually germinate if they don't have smoke. And so our landscape's always burnt historically. But what's happened in 2019, 2020, it was the end of a significant drought period. Um, land management practices have changed a lot over the last 50 years. And so essentially it was a, it was the well, perfect so David storm. David are there about the wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Hundreds are still burning, mainly across the southeast of the country, where the authorities are desperately trying to prevent. So in New South Wales, where I live, uh, we had large um, tracts of land burnt during the 2019-2020 megafires, which, you know, went all over the world, saw what happened. Uh, for koalas in the state that I live in, they lost 25% of their habitat mm. in those fire events. And in some areas where we knew that was like the last population of a frog species or some of the streams, they actually went out and brought the animals into captivity and, and kept them in for captive breeding programs. And they've been releasing them back into the wild. Uh, Woolworths, which is one of our biggest supermarket chains here in Australia, donated, I can't even remember now how many hundreds of tonnes of carrots, and they flew helicopters over the National Park mountain range and threw carrots out the door to so the herbivores such as the rock wallabies and, and the macropods had something to eat. They estimated that 3 million individuals species died during during those fires here in, in New South Wales. These fires were, they burned so hot and so fast. It, it literally looked like the face of the moon.
0: That's heartbreaking.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just soul destroying. <laughs> For us as conservation biologists in Australia, it really felt like the opportunity to raise the profile about biodiversity loss and conservation and the crisis that we find ourselves in.
0: So thinking about the spaces that humans occupy, right, they don't look like what they used to look like. And one term that's used for thinking about turning those spaces back into something what we might consider to be a little more, quote unquote, wild is uh, rewilding. So can you tell us a little bit about what rewilding is and how that sort of comes into play with your work?
2: Essentially, rewilding or or conservation translocations is using the ability to move species, whether that be plants or animals, uh, back into a landscape we know historically they existed in. And in some of those landscapes, uh, the individual species still exist, but because they've been separated from other species for a long period of time, you essentially are doing gene flow, so you're augmenting the population. So I think rewilding is kind of like this term that's all-encompassing for revegetation, putting animals back, putting plants back, and then conservation translocations is really the act of of moving individual species around to try and and facilitate that kind of wild-type environment to come back.
0: Rewilding is one of the ways scientists are trying to piece back habitats and ecosystems to look a little bit like they did before. It's an answer to the way we've typically gone about conservation, rooted in 18th century philosophies. Historically, conservation has been designed to designate huge parks in order to protect habitats and animals.
1: Protection and propagation of wild life are important parts of the program. And development plans are drawn with this in mind.
0: Essentially meaning we would fence off the wild places of the world from us. And when it comes to our human spaces, we have a carte blanche to do what we'd like. But with things like climate change, we're realizing that those sins don't start or stop at our self-imposed borders. Whether it's repairing the damage from big natural events like wildfires, or nurturing species or environments harmed by human activities. Rewilding is one way scientists recommend to help fix things. And for Dr. Hogg, this includes the animals that have been hit hard by these events. There is. So that clip we just heard is of you releasing a Tasmanian devil back into the wild. Can you give us a bit of a synopsis of... What happened in that video and, and what has sort of happened to Tasmanian devils in the past? Why are you studying them?
2: Okay, so I'll start with what happened in the clip and then explain what's happened to devils. So uh, the sounds that you heard, that, that really kind of high-pitched screeching sound... is is the sound that devils make, and that's actually how they got their name. So, um, Tasmanian devils are a nocturnal uh, marsupial carnivore. They're the largest marsupial carnivore in the world. Uh, they won that salubrious title in seventh of September, in fact, in nineteen thirty six, when the last Tasmanian tiger died in a zoo in Hobart. Just an aside here,
0: folks: the Tasmanian devil, Doctor Hogg is researching the one of Looney Tunes fame. <laughs> is not the same as the currently extinct Tasmanian tiger mentioned earlier by dr. Newton totally different animal
2: Tasmanian devils actually den underneath people's houses and they scream like that <laughs> underneath <laughs> your house and so when Europeans first arrived in Australia to them it sounded like you know the devil living underneath the house and, and that's literally how they got their name. Uh, So that devil was a little bit unhappy when we opened the trap door uh, and then you hear us just like dumping it out of the PVC pipe trap that we trapped them in and, and it running off into the forest. So the reason we study Tasmanian devils is in 1996, uh, Christo Bars, who was a National Geographic photographer, took a a photograph of a devil uh, with these massive uh, open tumours on its face in the northeast part of of the state of Tasmania and jump ahead a few years, it turned out that the tumours were in fact an infectious cancer. DFTD or devil facial tumour disease, as it's known, has now spread across about 90% of the state of Tasmania. And we've seen uh, probably population decline of about 80% in the entire species across its range. And so if we lose Tasmanian devils out of the landscape, that's just going to have knock on consequences for all the other Um, smaller marsupials that live in the critical weight range between about 500 grams and one and a half kilos. And so, yeah, that's one of the key reasons why we're trying to make sure we can keep devils in the landscape.
0: Dr. Hogg was tasked with finding a way to save the Tasmanian devil.
2: I'd been tasked with managing the the devil insurance population and all we had was, I think we had about 250 devils in, in about 12 zoos in 2010. And I had a question around whether the devil founders that came into the insurance population, whether they related to one another. And someone was like, oh, there's this, is, this is woman at Sydney Uni, Kathy Belov, and she's able to do genetics. So I walked into her office and I was like, you, someone told me you do genetics. And what I discovered later is Kathy's actually a world specialist in immunogenetics in marsupials. So it was definitely the right person's door to knock on. Long story short is we've now sequenced probably close to four and a half thousand devils between the insurance population and all over the state of Tasmania. It's the most comprehensive study now where we actually have a handle on the genetic structuring across, across the state. So Tasmanian devils are actually one of the most genetically depauperate species I work on. We sometimes joke that they're the, it's a game of clones. They're just very, very similar to one another. And so we suspect it's because of this low uh, levels of genetic diversity, particularly in the immune genes. Um, and that's one of the reasons we believe the cancer can transmit so readily between the individuals. So it starts off as a little like pimple, uh, usually on the inside of the lip or on the outside of the lip, and it, essentially the tumour just grows. So the tumour grows to such an extent it can destroy the jaw, eat away half of the face block the respiratory system, block it so they mm. can't feed, so they starve to death. It is gruesome. Mm. Uh, it is, it is, it's quite a gruesome disease. And so the way it's transmitted is devils, particularly during uh, breeding season, males and females will bite one another around the facial area. When, they, um, when they're mating. And that seems to be uh, the biggest incidence of the transmission of the cancer. So you've got, you know, a combination of factors. You've got devils have low genetic diversity and then you have a cancer, which is biologically is very clever. It, it, it does things, you know, to hide from the immune system and to make the the environment it's infecting the, be the best possible environment for it to survive in. And so... We take devils from the insurance population. They go to an island called Mariah Island, and we mix the populations on the island. So the idea is, is every time you have a mixing event, you're creating more and more genetic diversity in the devils. And it's those devils that we use for translocations. And then we pick a site on Tasmanian mainland and we, we, we release the devils.
0: So she went on to use genomics as a way to increase their genetic diversity. Maybe that would solve the disease
2: problem. The very first release we did, we took 20 animals out of captivity and we released them and within the first five weeks, four of them were killed on the road by cars. The next release we did, we lost another very high percentage of devils um, to roadkill uh, in the first uh, six-week period, but it meant that we really needed to rethink how we were going to use that population for translocations and, and that's where we, we cottoned on to putting them on the island and letting them breed up on the island, and then releasing them um, to mainland Tasmania. So the island is a national park. Uh, it's one hundred and fifteen square kilometer island national park off, off the east coast of Australia. Uh, it had never had a, a large scale carnivore on it before. Uh, it had an endangered a, a colony of endangered penguins and and endangered shearwaters on the island. And we put the carnivore on the island, and they ate the birds. So
0: no, they, uh, yes, I mean, they did. of course they did. That's not their fault. <laughs>
2: But but can't still, make them vegan.
0: Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
2: It's not how the world works. No, nor should we. <laughs> and it's like I have these visions that I'm going to cause the tumour to mutate so significantly it's going to kill the devils faster. Oh no. And, then, you know, like I would have you know, catastrophically made a species go extinct.
0: Just a quick note. There were some more of those birds on another island, in case you were worried that that was the end of them. As for our Tasmanian devils... Carolyn started to finally see some successes.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we released devils in in 2016 to a place called Stony Head. And um, yeah, the results are back. We're just processing them now. And we've been able to introduce new um, genetic variants at the immune genes. So we've made devils fitter. Uh, They're able to sustain better parasite loads. They've got really good blood results. It doesn't make them resistant to the disease, unfortunately, as much as I'd like to be able to breed resistance in. That, That doesn't work that way. But it just means that the devils, if we can make them a little bit more immunologically robust, that that they will then, their system will have a better chance of being able to fight against the cancer itself. And if we can get them to live for two breeding seasons, then, hey, populations might bump up a little bit. Uh, And the best part about it is we tripled the population size in five years, uh, and the prevalence of disease hasn't increased at all. It still sits around about 25%.
0: By using genomics as a lens into the diversity of these little creatures, researchers can begin understanding how to give them a helpful boost in the wild. But is doing so giving them an unfair advantage? Is our intervention giving animals, like the Tasmanian Devil, a devilish edge? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, and we want to get more people listening to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like Nice Genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Help unleash a whirlwind of devilish creatures by telling a friend about us. We left off with the work being done to save Tasmanian devils. But turning back and looking at the de-extinction research Dr. Axel Newton is working on. Everything,
1: all the technology that we're looking to develop could actually have enormous benefits to, um, to helping the Tasmanian devil re-thrive.
0: It may just help us in the fight for species in precarious situations.
1: So this is a really interesting question. There's this sort of ethical and moral debate as to, you know, should we be doing this when we can focus on current conservation efforts? The reality of the question is, well, firstly, it's complex. But secondly, um, what we're actually trying to achieve here has enormous benefit to existing species. So everything that we're trying to do and develop will really have um, real-world application to preserving uh, threatened species as it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I said, uh, you know, what we're looking to achieve is really being able to sort of re-engineer diversity into populations. And that has enormous benefits for re-engineering diversity into threatened species such as the Tasmanian devil and other species like that as well.
0: So can you take us from the start? How did the thylacine project begin?
1: So the thylacine project began about 20 years ago by my supervisor, Andrew Pask, and really the first thing that really brought this into the limelight is he had this idea of whether we can take some thylacine dna and whether we can resurrect its function so what andrew did was he took a little um thylacine gene and he cloned it into a mouse and then was able to show that the thylacine dna drove expression of this gene um so this is a gene that's been extinct for 100 years but it was still able to resurrect its function so this really this concept kicked off this whole idea and then the most important part and the next step in that, and this is where I've been involved, is we were really fortunate enough to sample some tissue from a preserved Biocene pouch young specimen, again, about 100 years old from Melbourne Museum, and we were able to sequence its genome. Now, the genome is the first step for any of these processes. We need to have a, a really good quality um, builder's genome, effectively its genetic blueprint. And now, as we stand today, we have a really good um, near chromosome level assembly of this extinct biocene, which is remarkable for an extinct species. saga's in place.
0: So, where are we
1: now? So here we're in the we're in the um, biosciences for animal facility that we have in the basement of the building here, and in here we have all of our research mammals, or um, animals, actually. We have mice, we have donuts. We've also got some um, carp and some cane toads for some other projects. Mm-hmm. So today I'm just going to show you some of our uh, little recent muscle was our donuts. So these are little carnivores. They're like mice, but they've got little sharp pointed teeth. They eat cat food. Um, cat food. Cat food. Yeah, that's what they like. One of the one of the really cool huh. things that we found when we actually sequenced the thylacine genome so is we not only sequenced the genome, but we did some really interesting analyses to look at its kind of relationship amongst other marsupials. Are you guys in in the act? You look like it. Do we need
0: to put a
2: PG thirteen? They in the act? I
1: think they were just having a cuddle. Just a cuddle. Yeah. And, and what perfect. we found was that the Tasmanian tiger actually shares a very similar genetic distance. So that is it's kind of very similarly related to the Danats, Um Tasmanian cool devils, place? quolls.
0: They're so small.
1: Yeah, they're tiny. But effectively, so, effectively the, the findings were so that it didn't really matter which uh, of these closely related animals we used because they all were in the same sort of ballpark. So because the Dunnart is small, uh, it's easy to, to keep in captivity, it's easy to breed, it breeds all year round. There's many benefits of using it as our surrogate model species, you know, and we can't do the Tasmanian devil because it's obviously got this really, um, you know, unfortunate facial tumour disease and they're quite a threatened population as it is.
0: Okay, so put them away?
1: Yeah, they're our
0: What else goes on in that in that latter stage? How do we move from denart? Dinner- with thylacine there to thylacine?
1: Really um, really, sort of simply, the project is, number one, sequence the thylacine genome. So that's a big tick. We've done that and we've got it in a really good state. Number two, and which in my opinion is probably the most uh, intense and challenging, is re-engineering that Dunart cell into a thylacine cell. Number three is developing techniques where we can go and culture that cell through to an animal. Right, to an embryo and then through to birth. And then number five is actually housing and growing that animal into a a healthy adult. Now, that number five actually is probably one of the most simple that we can do. And that's because marsupials have a really interesting mode of reproduction that isn't really seen in other animals. And that is the fact that they're born in a tiny, tiny little jelly bean like state. They crawl into their mother's pouch and they do the rest of their development in the mother's pouch. Now, we think that thylacines probably only had a gestation of about two to three weeks. So what it means for us then is that once we have that thylacine cell, if we can turn that into an embryo, we only have to really artificially culture that for about three weeks before that animal is born. And we can then go and put that in the pouch of another closely related species or um, hand rear it and stuff like that.
0: Is there any like side stage where you get adorable little dunart that also has stripes?
1: Uh, I mean, (laughs) that would you know that would be something that I think would be uh, of interest to people, right? If you could get little striped mice or striped thunnas, I think the the really important, and I'm glad you asked that actually, because one of the most important things I think um, that needs to be mentioned is through this endeavor, we're not interested in trying to make uh, almost thylacine, right? This animal has to be thylacine it has to be a 99.9% thylacine it we we don't want to make this weird hybrid animal and I think that that's where we get a lot of sort of criticism from the public is they're saying oh you're playing god and you're you're going to be making things that aren't natural I agree with that and I don't I don't want to be making these you know weird hybrid abominations we want to ensure that we have a 99% thylacine and that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and rigor, but we will get there eventually.
0: Why is the thylacine itself important? What does it bring to the environment? Um, what would we get by bringing it back?
1: So, not only was the thylacine emblematic of Tasmania because it was this truly unique animal, it was also a carnivore. And in its ecology, it was the hypercarnivore you know, it was the apex predator, it was the top of its food chain. So, effectively, by Removing an apex predator from an environment, you destabilize the food chain, you destabilize the ecosystem. And a really good example of this is actually um, when the wolves were removed from Yellowstone National Park. And then there was this really interesting study recently where they reintroduced those and they looked at the flow and effects of reintroducing that predator into the ecosystem and it had enormous benefits. So this is what we're kind of looking at here. We're looking to re an ecosystem by reintroducing its apex predator. And again, going back to this idea of the dinosaurs or something along those lines, that's 65 million years ago where these ecosystems have dramatically changed throughout time. With the thylacine, we're talking about 100 years. We're talking about a blip of time and changing ecosystems. So... We believe that if you were to reintroduce that animal to that environment, everything is still pretty much exactly the same. It should just kick off where it left.
0: Right. It wouldn't show up being like, oh, no.
1: Yeah. Like, what's going on? <laughs> with what all on these here? things? Yeah. <laughs> it would start to control some of the smaller, you know, herbivores and, and pests and, and things like that that are getting out of control. Yeah.
0: From thylacines, woolly mammoths and Christmas Island rats, scientists are getting to a point where the animals that were lost through history might be able to make a reappearance. Bringing all of this together, I want to ask, if we can bring these species back, does that mean we should be rewilding the habitats that have moved on without them? And if so, what are the consequences? Back to Dr. Hawk. If we can bring species back that have been extinct for a long time, does that mean that we should set them free into their old habitats? Like we've got this process of translocation. What are those repercussions of bringing them (laughs) <laughs> to where they were before.
2: I mean, de-extinction is a very hot topic these days. And, um, you know, I think one of the, the conversations that needs to happen in the de- de-extinction discussion is is the ethics of it. You have to be able to de-extinct a species uh, and have it with enough genetic variability that when you release it, it has enough adaptive potential to be able to live in the environment in which you release it too. Uh, and we can't actually do that successfully at the moment with species that haven't gone extinct. <laughs> so that's something just to keep in the back of your mind. And a lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, how do you feel about, you know, the thoughts of de-extinction and, and whether or not um you, I think it should happen? I think what people need to realise is that they made a commitment to have a living settlement on Mars. And, I you know, they made that commitment back in the 1980s. And it was, it, it was a massive dream and I think they wanted to do it by like 2030, I can't remember the exact dates. But in the process of shooting for that massive ambition of putting human settlement on Mars, they developed the International Space Station and with that, all the downstream phenomenal amount of compute technology, carbon fibre, like there's just so many benefits that humanity has got from that investment in that kind of space race and the de-extinction race to me is the same kind of race. Whether or not we get to de-extinct a species to me is irrelevant but in the process of pursuing de-extinction we will generate a massive amount of new technology and new methodologies and a greater understanding of species biology that we actually know we need to protect the species we still have. Think about what we would able to do and what we could achieve if we had that kind of knowledge for everything. If you want to reach the moon, you have to shoot for the stars.
0: Carolyn, something that has been sort of a through point this whole episode is biodiversity right we're just talking about how important it is to preserve what we already have and then on the other side we have this idea of bringing species back and this is a real basic question but why does biodiversity matter
2: so i guess um what people need to realize is when we talk about biodiversity we're talking about all living things on the planet and that includes humans and there's three pillars that underpin biodiversity. There's diversity in ecosystems, uh, diversity of species. I think you learn in about year four science class that monoculture and agriculture is a seriously bad idea because your productivity goes through the floor. And the last pillar has been diversity of genes and genetic diversity. And so for the last 50 years, diversity of ecosystems and diversity of species has been really well studied and understood by ecologists, but it wasn't until the human genome and the the rapid development of genomic technology in the last decade particularly uh, that's really opened up our understanding of genetic diversity. What we now know is that answers and solutions for climate change come from having biodiversity but more importantly our food security is dependent on biodiversity and then the other thing as well is we haven't really developed any new antibiotic drugs in the last 50 years uh, and it's now estimated that 10 million people a year will die in 2050 from antibiotic resistant bacteria and so If you don't even believe in nature and having a forest out there to walk into, if you just believe in being able to feed yourself and have medicines, that is why we need biodiversity. Because without it, our ability to survive is now dependent on what we do to this planet. Mm
0: Well, Dr. Carolyn Hogg, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about conservation genetics.
2: No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real delight and and hopefully everyone uh, understands a little bit more about our weird and wonderful critters we have down here in Australia.
0: It may be a while yet before Dr. Axel Newton unveils a living and breathing Tasmanian tiger. But it's clear the work he's doing might help folks like Dr. Carolyn Hogg with protecting this planet and the creatures scurrying across it. My guests for today have been Dr. Axel Newton, Research Fellow for Comparative Genomics at the Thylacine Integrated Genomics Restoration Research Lab and at the Andrew Pask Lab, and Dr. Carolyn Hogg, Senior Research Manager of the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group at the University of Sydney. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones, wherever you listen from. Share us with your sciencey friends. You can also get in touch by DMing the show on Twitter by going to GenomeBC. We also have some learn-along activity sheets added to the show description. Join us next time when we immerse our ears into the watery depths to find one lonely whale.
1: And all these people would be like, oh, "What? There's a there's a one whale out in the ocean, and it's swimming about, and it's never receiving response." And I'm like, "Yeah, is that a good story?" And they would be like, "Is that a good story? Oh my god, I want to go find this whale!" Like people would be like, "I'm crying."
0: If you've got a moment, we'd love it if you give the devils a heavenly review of our show wherever you're listening from. I'll be Thyla seening you later. <laughs>